grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Today is often known as Waiting Sunday because it is the only Sunday between the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Forty days after Easter, as the scriptures declare, Jesus ascended into heaven. And so 40 days after Easter was this past Thursday. We observed it with the Ascension Day service. Ascension is supposed to be one of the greater feasts of the church year, but sadly, so many people pay little attention to it. The Psalm for the Ascension sets the tone. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, for God is the King of all the earth. Now, once Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples were instructed to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not tell them how long this waiting period would be. He didn't even tell them exactly what it would be like when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. But God fulfilled his promise in that 10 days after our Lord ascended, Jesus or the Holy Spirit had come upon them. So if we look at the timing of this, 40th day was Thursday, now 10 days of waiting. So we're in day three of the 10 days of waiting, which then makes, makes there one more week until Pentecost. So 10 days of waiting in all. The theme for waiting fits well with today's epistle. Today's epistle does allude to that because Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. He doesn't say that the end of all things is now here, but he says that this end is now at hand, which means that Christ will be coming and it will, he will come at a time in which people do not expect. So, just as the disciples were waiting for the coming of the Spirit at this time, so also now we, as God's disciples, are waiting for the return of Jesus. Now, when Peter suggests that the end is, or when Peter says the end is at hand, he is now suggesting that this is an urgent matter, that we ought to be occupied with holy things because Christ is coming back. But Peter wrote these words probably 1,961 years ago, and Jesus still has not yet returned. Because of the urgency in which Peter writes, this means that we must always be ready as we continue to wait for the return of Christ, and we ought to give careful attention to our conduct at all times. So what do we do during this time of waiting? while we wait for our Lord's return. How do we live our lives? In fact, Peter spends much of his epistle telling us what we ought to be doing, how we ought to walk as God's children. The book of 1 Peter is only five chapters long. I encourage you to go ahead and read it on your own. Essentially, Peter is teaching us to live a life of holiness. Throughout his epistle, he warns, warns against lewdness and lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, murder, theft, evil doing, and being busybodies. And he teaches that there will be much suffering among Christians 
because many in this world will not like the Christian's way of life or the Christian's beliefs. But even though we are called to walk in holiness, that does not mean that we are suddenly holy when we simply avoid the sins that Peter is telling us to avoid. Instead, to actually have holiness, it must be imparted to us. We are only holy by grace through faith. The holiness of God is granted to us. In our own baptism, we are covered with the very righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, that holiness is borrowed from Christ and granted to us. And so we are holy in baptism. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 3, that we can actually have a good conscience in baptism because of what God offers to us in baptism. First Peter teaches us that baptism saves us, that baptism takes our sin away, not by the removal of filth that's on our bodies like dirt, but, he actually, but through baptism, God removes the filth of our sin so that we now have an answer uh, toward God with a good conscience. Because in baptism, our sins are taken away. They are completely taken away. And so we do not have a bad conscience before God. We have a good conscience. Our sins are forgiven. But if you do think about your own conscience, uh, your, what's built in you, God gave us all a conscience that's naturally given to us by God. And our consciences do tell us the distinction between right and wrong. Our consciences, though, can easily become calloused. We can easily callous them by ignoring what our consciences are telling us. And we know that something is wrong and we do it and then we do it again and it just becomes easier and easier to violate our own consciences. Now, if you listen to the Bible about your sin and even if your conscience is, is seared or callous, you will know that you are guilty, that you are guilty of transgressing God's many laws, that you, that you have broken his commandments. And because of your conscience, you probably even feel guilty about some of those sins that you have done. But then also listen to what the Bible says about what God does for you. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished, which means he paid the entire penalty for your sin on the cross. He answered for all your sin through the shedding of his blood. He paid for all of your sins through his sufferings and death. And therefore, he cancels out your sin. And so your conscience is no longer burdened by your sin, for Christ has taken them away but he gives you a good conscience in which you can be confident that you are completely absolved of your sin and that God has received you as his dear child. Jesus then sent his spirit as he has promised. We heard about Jesus speaking of that in our gospel reading, the sending of the spirit. The spirit has guided us into the way of truth. And so through the word and the sacraments, the Spirit is now at work in our everyday lives. And through faith, the Spirit delivers to us that forgiveness of sins, so we do continue to have 
and answer before God with a good conscience. And with this forgiveness, we are declared saints. God actually sees us as pure and holy in his sight, not as the sinners that we know that we are, but he sees us in Christ. And our believing neighbors ought to have the same appearance to us as well. So how do we look at our neighbors? If God looks at us as pure and holy, completely washed clean of our sin, how then do we look at our neighbors? Look around you. Who do you see? You, of course, see a church. Of course, you see Christians. You see people who are redeemed by Christ. Now, what do you think, though, when you see them? You might think of some joys they have shared with you. You might think of some being your family and friends. But for some, you might think of a time that they said something and hurt you, and maybe even that was years ago. You may think of some as people whom you remember reading about in the newspaper for having committed a crime. And for others, you may think about how they should have made the newspaper for committing a crime but never got caught. When you look around and you see your Christian neighbors, what do you see and how do you treat them? Well, Peter teaches us. And Peter makes it clear. First Peter says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. When we pray, we do not just pray for our physical needs, but we pray for our spiritual needs. Peter isn't teaching you to pray about your own self all the time, but Peter is actually telling you to pray for not only yourselves, but also for your neighbors, including those whom you may know have committed serious or grave sins, and also for those whom, whom have, or who have hurt you. So Peter is teaching you to pray. Why? Because Peter says the end is coming. We don't know when Jesus will return, and we don't know when we or our neighbors will die. We don't know which one will happen first, death for ourselves or Jesus' return. And so we pray for ourselves and we pray for our neighbors. We pray that they will receive the implanted word with meekness which is able to save their souls. So that is actually a good use of our church directories. I'm sure I've brought this up in the past, but it is good for us to use our church membership directories, not just so that we get their phone number, but so that we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we know of people who are struggling spiritually, if we see that people have become delinquent in their church attendance and their use of the means of grace, it is good for us to name them in our prayers. And also, we remember of what we are to do with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as Christ sees us as righteous, as he has declared us to be holy and does not see our sin any longer, when we look around and see our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to no longer see their sin, bring up their past, but instead we are to see them as Christ sees them, redeemed by Christ, completely forgiven, and children of God.
And for that, we rejoice. Also, as we are praying for people, we may think of those who might live around us, who are not members of the church. Perhaps they have no church home. Perhaps they become delinquent in their own church. Perhaps they are caught up in a church that teaches falsely. We pray for them, that they may see the light of the gospel, that they, that they may take comfort in it and make use of the means of grace. We also pray for ourselves. We pray that we always remain on guard and that we do not allow the pleasures and cares of the world to, to get in the way of our Christian walk with Christ. We pray that we do not fall away from the faith through indifference and neglect. After all, as Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus will return. He'll return like a thief in the night. That is, he'll return at a time when, is, when many are not expecting. And we do not want to be caught unawares, nor do we want to see our neighbors caught unawares. In the second verse of our epistle, Peter declares, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So that's how we are to see our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we also need to ask the Lutheran question, what does this mean as we recognize that love covers a multitude of sins? You see, this verse is often misunderstood. Many think of the phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, to mean that we can now simply ignore our neighbor's sins, that we can just assume that our neighbor is going to go to heaven regardless on if he persists in his sin or not. So we often think it's just a green light to sin. And then we say, well, I got to love that person, so I'll just ignore it and they'll be fine. Everyone's going to heaven anyway, right? Isn't that what God means by this? But would Peter really mean to imply that all people are allowed to persist in their sin that they should ignore their sin, especially when he had just got done saying that the end of all things is at hand, when he does so as a warning that we are to be on guard? No, he doesn't imply that at all. Remember, throughout his epistle, Peter warns against all kinds of sins. So what is Peter getting at when he says love covers a multitude of sin? Actually, Peter is quoting Proverbs chapter 10, where it is written, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. We don't hate people, but instead we love all people. In fact, much of Proverbs 10 deals with how we use our mouths. We are not to use our mouths to lie or to speak evil of people. That is, we're not to be breaking the Eighth Commandment by repeating other things that other people have done, even if it may be true, because we are not to be ruining the reputation of other people. Instead, we are to use our God-given mouths to speak the truth of God and to speak wisely. Also, James writes about this. James was written quite a few years before 1 Peter was written. And James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So as James teaches, covering a multitude of sins doesn't mean to simply ignore the sin as if it does not matter, but instead it is in the context of bringing a sinner back into the fold of Christ. It is very similar to what Jesus says in his parable of the lost sheep, that the shepherd goes out and finds the one that is lost, and there's more joy in heaven when that sinner repents 
Jesus declares. And so sinners need to be turned away from their sin, that they would do so in repentance, that their, that their souls would be saved. If we tell people that it is somehow okay to persist in sin, we're telling them that we do not want to save their souls. And that, of course, is not love but ignorance at best and hatred at worst. Indeed, the loving thing to do is to convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, as Paul bids Timothy to do. Or as it is written to the church in Galatia, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So to love a person does not mean to condone or permit sin, but to love a person is to call a person to repentance and to forgive. And then when that person is repentant, we, of course, remember their sins no more. We do not look upon them or bring their sins back to mind. We do not hold sins against people. For the end of all things is at hand. And when you live lives of continual repentance, seeking to amend your conduct for the better, receiving forgiveness and being in the word, you are ready for that day of reckoning. You are ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what will he do on the last day? What will he do to you when you know of your many sins, when you may be feeling guilty, where you don't really feel like your conscience is as good as Peter says that it ought to be by virtue of your baptism? Well, the declaration that you will receive is not the one that you deserve. You deserve to hear the words guilty, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's what we all deserve because we're all sinners. But Christ has clothed you with his very righteousness. He has added you to his family through the waters of holy baptism. He has declared you to be righteous in Christ. You have been washed by the blood of the lamb. You have been fed the words of eternal life. And so what will Christ do for you on the last day? When Jesus returns, when the end of all things actually does occur, Jesus will declare that you, O sinner, are a saint. He will declare that you are not guilty. He will line you up as a sheep on his right side. He will separate you from the unbelievers and he will declare to you to come for and receive the gift of salvation. So while we wait for the last day, we do so in anticipation that Christ will return. We plead guilty of our sin. We receive our Lord's gifts with great joy. And we rejoice in the innumerable blessings that our Lord grants to us. We remember that we are forgiven. And we remember that our brothers and sisters in Christ enjoy that same forgiveness. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. <laughs>